My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it really is a joy to be bringing the Word of God to you this morning. It, it is an incredible sight, and it's an incredible sound to hear God's people praising Him here in this place. And so, whew, I'm going to tell you something. If you want a good seat in this house, it's up front. You can hear the, the culmination of all the folks from the very back where Jeffrey is, all the way to the front where sweet Wendy is, all singing the praises of our Lord and Savior. It is incredible, and the acoustics in this building are also fantastic. Uh, and so uh, that's just a, a shameless plug. You should sit up front with me. It's a great place to be. There's a front row here and a front row there, and they're wide open except for Brett, and he doesn't bite. Uh, at any rate, uh, at this time, I want to take a moment and dismiss Hubtown Kids, uh, ages three to five. Ages three to five, if uh, you uh, would like to participate in uh, Hubtown Kids, you're ages three to five, you can head this way with uh, Miss Wendy. She'll take care of you this morning. Uh, as they open the Word of God, they're going to be learning a little bit about our God, particularly that our God is everywhere. Say that with me. Our God is everywhere. That is a incredibly simple and yet profound truth that parents, uh, grandparents, we would do well to remember as well. Uh, uncles and aunts, it'd be good for us to, keep, to bear in mind that God, the creator of this universe, the one that gives us our breath, that he is everywhere and he, as the scriptures tell us, he beholds the, the good and the evil. Uh, and so our kids will learn a little bit more about that this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 12, completing that chapter and reading the first verse of chapter 4. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, all the way down to Philippians 4, verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Now, that I have already, or not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let lo those of you who are mature think this way. And if anyone, if, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Would you ask God to bless the reading of His Word? Father, we do now again come to You and we ask that you bless this word in our hearing this morning. We know that your words are life to us. 
And we pray by your spirit that you would apply them to our hearts. That we would see, Father, you more clearly. That we would see Christ, the Son, more clearly. That we would see the Holy Spirit and his work and activity more clearly. Father, that we would see our sinfulness ever more clearly. And so we lean on you now and we ask that these things again be done, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I'm not going to tell you the story of the tortoise and the hare. Who even calls a turtle a tortoise and a rabbit a hare? You know how the story goes. This morning there's another race that we learn about. In our story today, instead of a tortoise and a hare, we have one Christian who thinks that they must win the race on their own, in and of themselves. We have another who would think that they need not run the race at all. And then we have this middle ground. Those who know that Jesus has already won the race and he has invited them to join him in a victory lap. Our main point this morning as we look at this text of Scripture is this. As citizens of heaven, Christians are empowered by the gospel to stand firm and press on. As citizens of heaven, Christians are empowered by the gospel to stand firm and press on. I imagine that as I read this peculiar statement, you might have a few questions that bubble to the, to the front of your mind. Maybe one of them is, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Who are citizens of heaven? How can I become one? We'll work through that here briefly. Maybe another thought you have is, how particularly, Pastor Josh, does the gospel empower us to run the race? How does the gospel empower us to stand firm and even to press on? I believe we'll find the answer to these important questions through the Word of God as we work together. And so if you would, let's answer this first question. What are citizens of heaven? Well, you remember, I'm sure, the Philippians would, would find this particular metaphor perfectly applied to their situation because in a political sense they knew what it was to be citizens of a far-off country. You remember Philippi was a Greek city and yet this city-state had become a Roman city-state. It was a, a, an, an ambassador city of Rome. They'd been given citizenship though many of them had likely never even attended or uh, came close to the city of Rome yet they were still a part of that great nation. And very proud they were of their citizenship of that foreign country. But those in the Philippian church, they were citizens not just of Rome, but they were also citizens of another country. They were citizens of heaven. As we think of what it means to be a citizen of heaven, perhaps it's best to think of, of what a citizen is actually not. What a citizen of heaven is not. The Apostle Paul contrasts for us this morning uh, citizens of heaven with enemies of the cross of Christ. Would you look down at verse 18? The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, For many of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul, no doubt, had in previous encounters with the Philippian church shared positive stories of brothers who had been on the path of righteousness, running the race. And yet now, he says, through tears, they've turned aside and now they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Perhaps this is a painful statement for you to hear this morning. Maybe you have friends that even as you hear this, you think with tears, they now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, Paul posits these two citizens and enemies as a contrast. These enemies were in some way perverting the power. They were perverting the meaning of Jesus' work on the cross. And therefore, they were enemies of the cross of Christ. I believe Paul's referring to two different groups. One of them we're a little bit familiar with. The other we'll learn a little bit more about today. These two groups could be labeled the Law Party and the Liberty Party. We've already talked about the Law Party a little bit. They considered the work of Jesus on the cross as effective, but not good enough. There needed to be more added to the cross of Christ in order for you to obtain salvation. This was the law party. Maybe it was through circumcision or abstaining from meat offered to idols. Maybe it was participating in the particular Jewish festivals with a certain degree. There was still more to accomplish. The law party said something had to be done on your behalf in addition to to what Christ had already done. In a sense, what Christ had accomplished was not finished. You must complete his work. That was the law party. But then there was also this liberty party. They honestly went in the other direction. If the law party fell off on the left side, the liberty party fell off on the right. I think I got that backwards, didn't I? They honestly went in the other direction. They saw that Christ's atonement in some sense was so effective in atoning for their own sins that they didn't see the need to stop sinning. Maybe along the lines of this, they thought that they should continue in sin so that the cross of Christ and the grace that flows from it would abound. And in some sense, it kind of makes sense, but ultimately it is false. It's heresy. They sinned so that grace would abound cross of Christ would cover their sin. Both of these lines of thinking are gross misunderstandings of the gospel and ultimately, finally, they lead us to dangerous results. To use the law in some sense as a way to obtain favor from God. Wickedness. To totally go against the revealed word and will of God in your life, for your life. Also, wickedness. To say it's not enough. You must do more to earn your salvation. Or, it's more than enough. Continue to sin so that grace may increase. Both of these are in error. These guys are enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19 says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. If we're going to make a contrast, we need to learn more about these enemies of Christ. Number one, we see that they're headed for destruction. Remember that when Paul talks about those who who hold to this liberty ideology or this law ideology there, particularly in the book of Galatians, he says that they're damned to hell. It's dangerous. He says, finally, their end is destruction. Additionally, he says their God is their belly. This is a, a, a wonderful picture here. It's very vivid. The language helps us to see that the enemies of the cross of Christ are motivated by their own lusts. They're motivated by by their own personal desires. Their God is their belly. Their sinful appetites drive them to do what they do. 
And finally, we see that they celebrate sin. At the end of the day, these enemies glory in the very thing that God hates, and that is their sin. Even the righteousness, so to speak, that they can muster up is still tainted and sinful, and God hates it. And they celebrate it, both on the law side and on the liberty side. And by the way, there's a warning for us in this inscription, or this description, I should say. Many will say, in that day, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things? Those that are part of the law party and the liberty party, those particularly of, for who Paul weeps, are likely part of the bad soils listed in Mark chapter 4. There was some fruit some truth in what they believed, some truth in the way that they acted or responded to the Word of God, but finally it was evident they did not have a clear understanding, nor were they walking in accordance with the Word of God, the Gospel. And so here's the turning point in the contrast. We saw the enemies of the cross of Christ, now let's compare them to those who are citizens of heaven. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. If the enemies of the cross of Christ are headed for destruction, they have that to look forward to. But what do the citizens of heaven await? We await our Savior who will one day soon transform our bodies in the resurrection. And by the way, this is the prize that Paul is speaking of in verse 14. He's awaiting the glorification of his own body. He's awaiting the return of Christ, where he, along with the entire church, will be resurrected. What are they waiting for? What are citizens of heaven awaiting? Not destruction, resurrection. Furthermore, enemies of the cross of Christ, they're governed by their own lusts and sinful desires. They desire to earn their own salvation. They desire to go their own way, do whatever feels right, regardless of what Creator God commands. But citizens of heaven are not so. No, we obey our Lord Jesus. We keep His commandments. No, not to earn His love, but citizens of heaven keep His commandments because we love Him. And we love Him because He first, what? Loved us. And so enemies are governed by their own lust and sinful desires, and citizens of heaven are governed by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they love and who first loved them. And finally, enemies celebrate sin. They glory in their shame. And the thing that they should be ashamed of, they throw a party over. Al Mohler is helpful for me here. He outlines the steps of a revolution as such. First, what was condemned is now celebrated. First step of a moral revolution. What was condemned is now celebrated. What was celebrated, two, step two, is now condemned. And three, the final step, those refusing to celebrate are also condemned. The enemies of the cross of Christ, they celebrate sin. We clearly see this happening in our culture on every corner, as it were. But it's not so with citizens of heaven. We do not celebrate rebellion against God. We do not celebrate even our own righteousness, as it were, 
We do celebrate the righteousness of Christ imputed to those in the church. That righteousness imputed to us, given to us, laid at our account, across our account, was secured by the cross of Jesus Christ. And in that do we glory. In that we celebrate. Not in sin. And not in our own attempt at righteousness. But we make much of Jesus. If you have your loop this morning, look at the front cover of that. If you grabbed one, if you didn't, they're they're available to my right and left. There's also some in the back. On the very front cover, it says it's all about Jesus. Why do we say it's all about Jesus? Because your righteousness is still filthy and your unrighteousness is filthy. And yet Christ's righteousness is effective and that is beautiful and it is what we as a church celebrate. It's what those who are citizens of heaven celebrate. So enemies of the cross of Christ, they celebrate sin. They celebrate that which is shameful. And you remember that when sin is finished, it brings forth what? Death. It brings forth destruction. The righteousness of Christ, in contrast, when it is finished, when it has its final claim, it brings forth life. And so on an infinitely higher level, Christians are citizens of another city. Brothers and sisters, we are citizens of a city whose architect and builder is God, as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 says. We are a part of the Jerusalem that is from above, Galatians chapter 4. And we ourselves are foreigners and strangers in this land, as Hebrews 11 and 1 Peter 2 remind us. We're citizens of heaven. We're foreigners and strangers in this land. We celebrate different things. We are governed by a different law. And finally, our end is quite different. These citizens look to heaven. Christians, we await the coming of our Savior. He is so much greater and grander than a mere earthly emperor who is here today and gone tomorrow. No, we worship. We take our play from the infinite, eternal King Jesus, Lord Jesus. And so what are citizens of heaven? Who are citizens of heaven? Those who await the resurrection, those who obey King Jesus, and those who celebrate or glory in the imputed righteousness of Christ to his church. And so Hagerstown Church, we must stay true to these markers. We must tow this line. This is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. How sad, truly, through tears, Paul warns about those who stray to the left or to the right, just as the Proverbs said this morning that our brother Chuck read. Paul warns that those who stray to the left and to the right should not be followed. But those who walk the path of righteousness in the footsteps of Christ, they should be followed. And he challenges us to choose wisely when looking for role models. And I want to speak to the men in this room this morning. It sometimes is difficult for us to admit that we have role models or that we need role models. It's more evident we do a poor job of guarding and revealing that we have role models when we're younger. We betray that. But as we grow older, we find it maybe tougher for us to admit that we need role models or we, in fact, are 
affected by role models. And Paul is speaking to us and he's saying we must be proactive about who we model our lives after. And yes, this is not foreign to Scripture. We should choose role models. We should model our lives after faithful Christ followers going on before us. And to be honest, you're doing it whether you realize it or not. And this is for all of us. We all have role models. I admit that some of us are more susceptible than others, but each of us are easily influenced and very influential. Easily influenced and very influential from the youngest to the oldest. People are watching and you are watching also. And so if you're not careful, you yourself may also stray from the path depending on who you're following after. But we all want to be original, right? We all want to sing the song that Frank Sinatra sang, I Did It My Way, wanting to come off as if we came up with this idea ourselves. But even Frank Sinatra, the one who claimed to do it his own way, did the same thing that Lucifer did, did it his own way, which turned out to be not so original after all. We have to be careful who we're listening to, who we're following after. Looking only to Christ is a foreign concept in the New Testament. Now, ultimately, all that we follow after must be following after Christ. And yet, we still follow after those who follow Christ. Let me ask this question for you this morning Who in this congregation have you noticed is worthy of following? So quickly, we young people, we look past those with gray hair, those with experience, those who have walked with Christ longer than we. We look past them, even gathered in our own church, and we go to the blogs, we go to the Twitterverse, we go to the internet. Tell us how we're to live. Tell us how we must follow Christ. We ignore the godly men and women that God has placed here in this place, even the young ones that God has given to us that are not allowing others to look down on them but are saying I even in my youth will be an example of the believers we have those in this church we have godly examples whom we should learn from and follow even here in this room they're modeling for us how to repent they're modeling for us how to suffer in this present life and still hold tight to Jesus they're modeling for us how to be generous look around They're modeling for us how to pray. They're modeling for us how to run from sin, how to rear our children, how to stay faithful to God, how to stay faithful to our church, how to stay faithful to our spouse. They're modeling for us how to disciple, how to mourn with hope. My question is, are you paying attention? Are you looking for the role models? Are you looking in the right place? Paul warns, this is a dangerous, dangerous game. It's a dangerous step to take. And so be sure that the one that you choose to follow is also following Christ. The one that you choose to imitate is also imitating Christ. Those who you think are godly, do they bear the fruit of the Spirit? Or do they not? Do they walk in the footsteps of Christ? Or do they not? Paul tells us to choose wisely. And really, in humility... He points to himself and says, I am following Christ. Would you not imitate me as I imitate Christ? It's really helpful for us this morning because via Paul's example, we can see that the gospel really does empower us. And this is the transition piece. 
We're citizens, Christians, we're citizens of heaven. And how, do, how does that then apply to us standing firm and pressing on? What we see in Paul's life. And so if you're asking that second question now, what does the gospel actually empower us to do? Let's look to Paul's life. He challenges us to hold true to what we have attained. There in verse 16. And what he's saying is, he, he's using the language of a, of a plumb line. And he's saying this line is straight. This is what we're going to build our lives off of. This is how we're to walk. We're to walk on this line, so to speak. Paul's saying, hey, you've seen Christ do that. But in many ways, it's difficult for us to follow the example of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. Christ is unable, I say this reverently, unable to repent. Christ did not rear children either. There are many things that when we consider what would Jesus do, it's challenging for us to actually know what he would do, right? Well, Paul's the answer. As Paul follows Christ, as Paul imitates Christ, as the person to your left and to your right here gathered in this place, covenanted together with you as they follow Christ, they also serve as an example. As they walk the line, you follow in after them. But particularly about Paul, he he shows us what the gospel empowers us to do. The first thing that the gospel allows us or empowers us to do, and I'll give you two because Paul gives two, is one, to be forgetful. Now, some of you are saying, I didn't need Paul to help me with that. I'm already there. I'm already forgetful. Maybe, maybe if you have gray hair, you're saying that this morning and you say, well, at least I've got an excuse. The rest of us have no excuse. We're forgetful. But here, Paul is, in essence, encouraging us to be forgetful. He says in verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Hagerstown Church, I would encourage you to forget what lies behind. What does Paul have in mind when he tells his friends there in Philippi to be forgetful? Well, I think that he has in mind to forget your sin. When we come to Christ, we are able to forget our sin. The accuser of the brother, as we learned last week, he wants to remind us of our sin, does he not? Whether the sin was last week or last decade, whether it's been going on for a few minutes or a few years, he wants to remind us of the sin that has beset us, that we have succumbed to, and the sin that we have received forgiveness from. The sin that we have confessed, according to 1 John 1, 9, he wants to remind us of, and Paul reminds us to forget. And so, Hagerstown Church, we must be forgetful. And how does the gospel allow us to do that? Because the cross of Christ, of which citizens of heaven are no enemy, it pays our sin debt. Christ's work canceled out the sin of those who place their faith in him, and in turn, the righteousness which he attained through a perfect life is then applied to those who turn. And so, not in a foolish sense, not in an absent-minded way, but in a way that is walking in accordance with and holding fast to the word of God, the gospel, forget your sin. Furthermore, I think he's speaking not just of our sin, but he's also speaking of our own righteousness. He's speaking of your righteousness. Do you remember what Paul confessed last week? Hey, if anybody here wants to, to measure up 
against my pedigree, I dare you. Come on. And he lists out all the great things, all the works of righteousness that are evident in his own life. And he says, I've forgotten them. I've counted them as worthless. They're all behind me. Because righteousness does not come through the law. And so what does the Apostle Paul encourage us to forget? Not just our sin, but also our own sense of righteousness. What we're able to conjure up in our own ability, he says, forget it. And this can be done. This is empowered by the gospel. And so one, be forgetful. And don't forget it. But two, he also encourages us to be ambitious. Look at verse 13. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I believe ambition is great vision mingled with the belief that it can, that great vision, be realized. It's mingled, great vision, with a faith, a belief that it can be realized. If that's true, let me ask you this. What is your life ambition? What is your goal? What is your aim? Paul says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love to hear dear saints at the end of their life tell me that they long for heaven and that they're ready to go. I love to hear that. It's a wonderful testimony that they long for glory, that they see in this life there's nothing left for them, only what lies before the resurrection, knowing Christ more fully, glory. You know what I long for, though? I long to hear more of the young saints say that. I'm running to Christ. Even now in my youth, I'm ready for Christ. I'm ready for the resurrection. This world has nothing for me. Just as the Apostle Paul said, not at the end of his life. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's an easy thing to say when you have nothing left to live for. And that was not the case for our brother Paul. Would to God that that be our testimony. From the youngest to the oldest. That we say we would press on to the goal of our life, which is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Longing to know Christ more. Longing to be resurrected with Him. And sadly, we are too easily satisfied. We don't understand what is meant by a vacation at the beach, right? We're perfectly content with making mud, pie, mud pies in the slums. Too easily satisfied. We settle for a lesser joy. As C.S. Lewis reminds us. But this world is passing away quickly. And if this, if this life were all that there were, it might make sense in some way to live a life unto yourself. But by God's grace, in the deepest recesses of your life, in the deepest recesses of your heart, you know that there is more to come in the next life. You know that there's a judgment coming. And so why would you settle in this life for a lesser joy? Why would you settle in this life for a lesser aim? Even the American dream itself is nothing in comparison with knowing Christ and longing for a resurrection and final glory, eternity with Him. Church, 
Teenager, don't settle for a lesser joy. Give your life to Christ. Long for life with Him. Even now, as we see in our brother imitating Christ, may we imitate Him. What's the goal of your life? Ambition involves a great vision, but it also involves a belief that that vision can be realized. And the Apostle Paul wants us to have an incredible ambition. He wants us to have a great vision. He wants us to have the faith that it can also be achieved. The picture that Paul is painting for us is that we should vie, we should long for knowing Christ, completing the race, pressing on. The picture that Paul is painting for us this morning here in this text is that of a runner. They run with their eyes focused on the goal. They run with their eyes focused on the end and the reward that accompanies it. The error of those in the Liberty Party is to believe that we need not run the race at all. The error of those in the Law Party, they would argue that we must run the race ourselves and by our own merit be victorious. And the Gospel says that that is to the left and to the right. Those, those paths are the paths of the enemies of the cross of Christ. The gospel tells us that Jesus has run the race, that Jesus has won the victory. He has completed the race, and now he has invited us, in a sense, to take a victory lap with him and ultimately to him. The race that we run as Christians is less of us earning and more of us celebrating with Christ and longing for what awaits us because of what he has accomplished. A runner would not run a race looking back at their own failures, looking back at their own successes even. It would not be a very good runner if that was what they did. No, to the last few good laps they don't look at, to the slow start as they took off from the line, no, they don't look at that. They don't focus on that. They believe that they can win. They believe that they have won. And so, because of that, they run. The gospel empowers us to run with a great ambition that we will win because Christ has won. So how does the gospel respond to the law party? It says, do not attempt to earn salvation. Already, Christ has made you His own. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is true of you. If you've turned from your sins, and you've placed your faith in Jesus, do not attempt to earn salvation. Already, Christ has made you His own. And to the Liberty Party, how does the Gospel respond? How does it empower us? It says this, do not continue to sin. Why? Because Christ has made you His own. In spite of your sin, it's the same answer whether we're talking of the law or talking of liberty, Christ, Christian, Christ has made you His own. And so as we close this section of our time reviewing this text, think of this. As citizens of heaven, Christians, you are empowered by the gospel to stand firm and to press on in the race that you are running. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that this would be realized more fully in this church this morning. 
that this middle road that you've called us to, this middle road of righteousness, Christ's righteousness that we walk in is made available to us, not because of the works of righteousness that we think and desire to do, but because of the work, because of your mercy afforded to us by Christ via his cross. We pray that this church, as we move forward, and that those in the hearing this morning would realize the law is unable to make them righteous. But the law is still valuable in leading us to Christ. May we be found in Him this morning, and may we press on as a church in Him. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we joyfully press on as citizens of heaven here in this place is by observing the Lord's Supper. And as we draw near to the Lord's table to, to celebrate the communion of the body here this morning, and to celebrate the blood of Christ, we are grateful to remember that our Lord instituted this practice for several reasons. I want to give them to you this morning for your reflection. So prayerfully receive these as we meditate together. The Lord's Supper this morning, it is for the perpetual memory of Christ's dying for our sake. It is a pledge of His undying love for His church. It's a picture of a bond, a bond of our union with Him and to each other. It's a seal, a picture of the seal of His promise to us and a renewal of our obedience to Him. It's for the blessed assurance of His presence with us who are gathered here together as Hagerstown Church. It's an opportunity for us to love the Savior and to feed spiritually on Him who is the bread of life. And it's a pledge also of His coming again when we gather around this table as saints have done for 2,000 years. We continue to do so not just in remembrance of Him, but in waiting for Him. And so church, as we come to this table, we confess together as we do in our statement that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 and following the Apostle Paul gives the church instructions as it relates to this practice. In verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
The sacred time at the Lord's table is for believers. It's for believers who have rested their hope on the death and the resurrection of Christ. So Christians, we believe that Jesus truly lived, that He truly died, and that He really did indeed rise from the dead. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. And we believe that He was raised for our justification. We believe finally that He will return again in glory as the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, bringing all things in subjection under His feet. And so if you don't believe this, we would encourage you pastors of Hagerstown Church that you would refrain from partaking of the bread and the cup until you come to faith in Christ so that you truly may partake in the Lord's Supper worthily and in full belief. Furthermore, we encourage those of you who are baptized believers and members of the local church to examine your own heart so that you can partake in a worthy manner. For those of you who are visiting with us, If you're a member in good standing of a like-minded, gospel-preaching Christian church, we also welcome you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. But if your church doesn't practice formal membership as ours does, we still welcome you, if you're committed to that body, to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. And yet still, if you find that your heart is not right, I would ask this morning that you would refrain from partaking in the Lord's Supper until you can freely do so in good conscience. With this little bit of fencing at the table, I would invite you to consider the things we've just talked about. Consider the scriptures we've just read. To consider your own heart now. And so would you pray? Would you meditate on these truths? In accordance with the Word of God, in communion with His Spirit, would you prepare your heart for communion? Would you pray?